Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Well, I woke up this morning, didn't know what to do. Came without warning, if I only knew. Got no gas in my tank, no cash in my bank. Help me, Lord, help me, got those out-of-work blues. People marching in mobs, now that's something new. They're searching for jobs, they look through and through. They got no gas in their tanks, got no cash in their banks. Help them, Lord, help them, got those out-of-work blues. There was a time in 1929, we hit the Great Depression. Those days have passed, we never thought they'd last until this double-dip recession. How we got here, no one knows, and I have to confess, my confusion still grows. How'd we get in this mess? Got no gas in my tank, no cash in my bank. Help me, Lord, help me, got those out-of-work There was a time when we were triple A. Those days have gone, and that was yesterday. I won't despair, though. I won't give up hope. There's got to be worse things than being flat broke. But what they are, I don't know. I don't have a clue. I wish I was dreaming. I wish it weren't true. Got no gas in my tank. Got no cash in my bank. Help me, Lord. Help me. Got those out-of-work Help me, Lord, help me, got those out-of-work blues. Help me, Lord, help me, got those out-of-work blues. Or something like that. And that was Out of Work Blues, composed and performed by veteran actor Stacy Keach, alias Mike Hammer on screen, along with films directed by John Huston and Robert Altman and American X, and who also happens to be a musician as well. Keach is our guest this week, phoning in from Warsaw and talking about his latest production he directs and stars in, airing online, Vienna, a drama confronting the opposing views about human existence proclaimed back then by Sigmund Freud versus Carl Jung. But first... This is the most incredible plant on the planet. This is actually medicine. I've seen the healing. I can't turn my back on that. Voters legalize the recreational use of marijuana. We We are the Buzz Sisters. We did that so good. (laughs) I'm a second generation cannabis farmer. My dad would say things like, make sure you don't tell anybody. I have owned two restaurants in New York City. My goal in the cannabis industry is to support the small family farmers. Our dispensary will be geared to the needs of seniors. Hi, my name's Felicia. I am a LGBT and cannabis advocate and activist. Is getting legal getting harder? Plants don't have office hours. <laughs> Do something that scares you every day. You have to learn how to be bold and stand up for yourself. Small pot farmers say the state is not standing by its promise to protect them. If that doesn't happen, we'll be there to confront whoever it is we need to. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. In 2016, Californians voted yes on Proposition 64, which made cannabis legal for recreational purposes. But perhaps counterintuitively, the consequences of that act were decidedly mixed and complex. A new documentary, Lady Buds, focuses on a group of six cannabis growers, mostly women, who had to wrestle with the many unforeseen circumstances that came along with pot legalization. I'm happy to be speaking with the director of Lady Buds, Chris Russo. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Chris, what prompted you to make this film? Well, when I saw that legalization was on the ballot in 2016 in California, I knew we were about to witness a major shift in how people thought about cannabis in our economy. I noticed that there was a lot of women in the cannabis industry. There was a lot of media news around legalization. And I read somewhere that 36% of leadership roles 
in cannabis were held by women. And I was so curious about that and intrigued. Hmm. And I started to research it more and more. And after um, going to different networking groups, uh, women in cannabis and cannabis farmers markets, I met a lot of women in the space and just realized how fascinating to know that women were the backbone of this, this industry that I had always thought was you know, kind of a bro culture. And so the women that I've met, their stories were incredible, stories of resilience, the stories of risking their freedoms for decades to grow in the shadows. Um, I just knew that there was something special here and I wanted to tell the story of legalization, you know, through the eyes of these women just to see what was going on in California. Your film, as you say, follows the fortunes of several different small groups of independent growers. Well, tell us about them briefly. Who who are they? You know, after interviewing over a hundred different people, I really uh, wanted to create stories that represented diverse voices. It was really important to me as a as a queer filmmaker to really have a very diverse um, cast of characters. So I chose six women that could tell different stories in cannabis. Um, we have Chia Rodriguez, who is a second-generation cannabis farmer from Mendocino County, who's raising uh, children on a cannabis farm. We have uh, Karen Wagner, who is uh, a businesswoman, really, at heart. She's also from New York. We have Sue Taylor, who's a 72-year-old retired African-American uh, Catholic school principal uh, up in the Bay Area. <laughs> Amazing woman. And then we have the Bud Sisters, uh, which represent the, uh, you know, the OGs, the medicine makers uh, in the hills of Humboldt that um, were growing illegally um, for decades and how legalization was going to affect them. And then last but not least, we have uh, activist Felicia Carbajal, Latinx queer uh, cannabis activist in Los Angeles, who uh, every day is fighting um, to repair the harms that the war on drugs uh, has has had on marginalized communities, fighting for social equity, fighting to to expunge records. She represents also the voice of the queer history for me in, in cannabis as part of the film. And how did you find and get to know these women and families? Well, I, I met them at these uh, cannabis farmers markets. Um, I met them mm-hmm. at different networking groups, and then they and they would invite me to go up to their farms. And so, I was intrigued. Oh. You know, after uh, having a relationship with cannabis most of my life, when you're invited to go to a cannabis farm, you you take up that <laughs> opportunity. Before 2016, when Proposition 64 was passed in California, what was the situation for pot growers? Well, I'm not an expert in this area, but many of them were operating under Prop 215, which was the Compassionate um, Care Act that was passed in 1996 that legalized medical marijuana. So it was kind of a Uh quasi-legal situation that they were operating and supplying uh, cannabis to medical dispensaries. You mentioned before that so many women in particular were involved in this business. Why do you think that was? Well, I think that women have always been part of cannabis culture. They have been the medicine makers. They've been the heads of the household that have been making decisions about wellness and, you know, medical concerns for their families. They're amazing cultivators. Cannabis itself is inherently a a female plant, meaning that the the psychoactive and and medicinal properties of the plant uh, are only there in the female plants. You know, I, I think that there was a lot of opportunity in this industry, and th- they were excited to reach for their own slice of the American dream and, and and use cannabis as a wellness product. One of the growers references the idea that a lot of the pot cultivation in California was a result of the AIDS crisis. Could you explain more about that connection? Sure. Um, Back in the 90s, we had the AIDS crisis in San Francisco, pretty much started in the 80s. But in the 90s, the community started to galvanize and there were some lesbian and gay activists in the Castro area, specifically Dennis Perone, um, Scott Imler from Southern California, uh, Brownie Mary, and the other writers of the Compassionate Use Act that was passed in 1996. So what was going on at that time was that cannabis, uh, you know, was alleviating a lot of the the pain um, that these AIDS patients were 
having to endure and it was used um, medicinally. So if it weren't for the activist work that happened around that moment in time, uh, this, this legal industry wouldn't be what it is today if it weren't for the queer community in San Francisco during the 80s that actually uh, pushed through the foundations of, of medical marijuana laws. I'm happy to be speaking with the director of Ladybuds, Chris Russo. So, Chris, 2016 comes along and Californians voted yes on Proposition 64, the legalization for recreational purposes. How did that change things? I think there was some cautious optimism uh, with the passing of Prop 64. Uh, Many of the cultivators were sick of hiding in the shadows and, and wanted to live their lives out in the open. There was a lot of optimism around the idea of doing what they love to do, what they're passionate about, but not getting in trouble, right? Didn't really unfold until... Um, the the overturning of the one acre cap and and when we saw big business really come in and kind of start to take over. Can, yeah. can you talk a little bit more about that one acre rule? At first, the new laws were supposed to protect small growers. What happened? Right. So in Prop sixty four, there was a provision that would allow the small farmers to get a leg up in the industry by having a one acre cap on cultivation for the first five years that legalization was uh, put into effect. So that would kind of ensure that they could continue to cultivate and not have to be up against these monopolies of, you know, cannabis businesses that were going to grow acres and acres of of weed. There was a meeting um, the night before the emergency regulations were going to come out and the provision was was in there. And then the next morning it, it was completely removed. It was kind of shocking. Chris, was it that the one acre rule was not in the proposition when people went to vote on it, or was it just ignored even though it was voted on? It it was completely voted on. And then it was. Uh It was completely voted on. That was why cultivators came out of the shadows to vote for Prop 64. Uh You know, it was was a promise Uh that was in there that they were like, okay, we're going to be able to give this a go. And then it completely was taken out. The regulators removed it um, without any explanation. Well, as one person in the film says, it's capitalism after all. The big guys are going to wipe out the mom and pop stores. Is that, in fact, what's happening? Are the big guys getting in? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. I mean, this has happened in the dairy industry. This has happened in in other agricultural industries. This is happening... A lot everywhere, you know, where there's like these corporate monopolies. So it, this is why it's so important to support your your local businesses and um, to support your local farmers. Um, sadly, the regulations were created to benefit uh, big business businesses that have millions of dollars of backing that can have a burn rate that where they can, you know, uh, be in business for years and taking a loss is not going to hurt them. Yes, what we're seeing is uh, an extinction of the small farmer up in the Emerald Triangle. People are walking away from their land because they can't afford the taxes. They can't afford to become compliant. They're not making enough money to pay for uh, what it costs them to grow the cannabis itself. One of the growers says, we can't compete with Whoopi Goldberg. (laughs) Are celebrities getting in on the game also? Oh, yeah. Celebrities are getting in left and right. You know, some people see cannabis as a, as a sexy, glitzy, you know, fun industry. But these are people, again, that can afford to lose money and can afford to wait it out. Well, you do in your film show the small growers bravely attempting to fight off the threat of the big guys. T- tell us about some of the steps that they took. In Chia's community, they formed a collective called Mendocino Generations, which was about 80 farms that band together. They thought they needed to do this to go up against the big corporations. And at first, they were optimistic. You know, they were all, you know, working together to brand themselves, to be out in the market, to create marketing. 
But at the end of the day, the big businesses like still have deeper pockets than even a collective of 80 farms. It's really hard to go up against, as we were saying, the Whoopi Goldbergs of cannabis, the venture capitalists that are coming in from other states, the bigger businesses that are buying acres of farm and, and just um, taking over the dispensaries alike. It's super hard to, to fight these, these big conglomerates that come in. I think it was interesting that you interviewed some of the uh, folks you call the OGs who were totally skeptical of the whole legalization process. The thing about the OGs is that they they were pouring money into their communities. I mean, after the fishing industry died, after the logging industry died in Humboldt, the cannabis industry kind of came came together. And this was during, you know, the late 60s, early 70s with the back to the landers. These were people that just wanted to leave urban centers and, um, you know, get out, get out there and, and, and live their own lives, live off the land. They discovered they could grow cannabis to survive. And just like any other, you know, community member, they, they put their money back into the community. They put it in a community centers. They bought cars. Obviously they were shopping in supermarkets. They're putting their kids through school. So there was this whole shadow economy that was kind of created from the cannabis industry, you know, prior to legalization. Legal or not, the cops are still going to cop, aren't they? They're, they're, they're still messing with the pot growers making arbitrary arrests. Tell us about that. I will say that there's a punitive holdover that's happening in these communities, in Mendocino and Humboldt and Trinity. Police officers, the sheriffs, they, they used to see these people as criminals, them, and there's a little bit of resistance there. So they are uh, not always seeing eye to eye, and they are discriminated against so this is this is going to happen across the country. Um, how yeah. how do you legalize something that you know you used to put people in jail for? This is an industry that still has to um, do business in cash, and that's very dangerous. When the riots were happening during the George Floyd um, protests last year, you know it was organized crime that was tar- targeting the dispensaries up and down California that were looted and destroyed. The the police officers weren't quick to go and, you know, stop this from happening. You know, it was, it's a, it's a very tenuous situation and it's still very dangerous to, to be doing business in in cash. So it's why are they doing business in cash? Why are they doing business in cash? Because it's a federally illegal to do business in cannabis. Cannabis is still a schedule one drug. So that's the weird loophole. And until it's decriminalized on the federal level, banks will not do business with cannabis professionals. Uh-huh. At the end of the film, one of the growers asks, who's the winner here? Who, who do you mm. think is the winner here? Well, the story's not not over yet, but I feel like it's definitely skewed to the big business that's coming into the space. Unless we stand up and fight as a community for the smaller businesses, the smaller growers. And I mean, this is true for anything in our, in our lives right now at the moment. I feel, I feel like the film reflects the current state of the country with the struggle with corporate capitalism, controlling the economy and dominating our democracy. I, I hope that my film makes people reflect on what's happening on a larger scale in this country. Where and when will the film be released? Uh, well, I'm really excited that the film's having a theatrical release on November 26th. It'll be in theaters across the country and available on demand. Just really excited for the world to see the film after uh, working on it for three and a half years. It's getting out there. It's a dream come true. I've been talking with filmmaker Chris Rousseau about her new film, Lady Bud's A Loving Look at some of the pioneers of the underground cannabis growing community and the problems that came on with legalization. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And next on Arts Express, a little Thanksgiving season counter-programming. First Nation Canadian director Dennis Goulet phoned in from the Hawaiian Film Festival in Honolulu, where her indigenous uprising sci-fi thriller Night Raiders screened, and a unique film festival focusing on Asian Pacific emerging directors, Goulet from the Cree and Métis tribes in the Canadian Prairie province of Saskatchewan, 
also talks about her switch from casting to directing, in large part because, quote, I was calling in all of these incredible Native actresses, and all they were doing over and over again was being silenced or killed on screen. She also gives updates on the real-life horror off-screen of the many missing and murdered Indigenous women and those Canadian boarding death schools. First, some scenes from Night Raiders, then Danis Goulet. As long as we have one piece of land, they will always come for us. Is it too late? No, but we have to go now. Pledge our hearts and give our allegiance to our glorious republic. And solemnly swear to protect it. One country. One language. One Hello, and welcome to our show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Now, you're over there at the Hawaii International Film Festival in Honolulu. What is the experience like for you having your film Night Raiders screened there? Yeah, it's incredible. Um, I was lucky enough to come to Hawaii uh, through um, a mentorship that I was doing through the Sundance Native Labs five years ago, and I was introduced to this incredible community of filmmakers um, making work here. And it's such an honor for the U.S. launch to have happened back here. Um, of course, Hawaii is beautiful, but it's really the people and the energy here. And the festival's been so incredible. And yeah, it's been going great so far. And how would you say the Hawaii Film Festival described as, quote, a focus on Asian Pacific cinema education and the work of new and emerging filmmakers, a different experience compared to other film festivals for you? Well, I think they also um, focus to a certain extent on Native and Indigenous voices. Um, and I know that they facilitated a conversation with a Native Hawaiian professor here as a part of the festival with me about Night Raiders. And it was one of the most in-depth conversations. It was such a joy to speak to him. And there's just something about um, that connection um, as, as Indigenous people, whether they're here in Hawaii or over where I come from in Canada, that really deepens the conversation. So it was such an amazing talk. And I'm so thrilled that the Hawaii International Film Festival has the focus to bring folks like um, us together. And why did you choose to make a sci-fi dystopian production as your first feature film, rather than about the terrible things going on in the real world for Canadian Indigenous people? Um, really, for me, it, it it is truly about the terrible ongoing, um, you know, things that are happening uh, to Indigenous people in Canada. I wanted to talk about the impact of these Canadian colonial policies on all aspects of Indigenous life. But there was something about the container of the near future that freed me up even more to really explore, hopefully with impact, just how great um, the impact has been. And it, you know, you can, in a dystopian world, in a fictional world, you have more freedom to show everything as it happened. You know, there were many racist and harmful policies that Canada inflicted upon Indigenous people. One of the primary ones in the film that I'm talking about is the residential school system. And it was in place for seven generations of Indigenous families. And it was a child removal policy. And I think people think of Canada as a polite nation, but we actually have to grapple with this. And going into the near future almost gave me the freedom to hit it harder um, so that hopefully audiences would have a better understanding of what that impact is and that it is still happening because the last school only closed in Canada in 1996. And so this is something very present in our families, in, a, in our communities. 
And for many years, over a decade, you were a casting director prior to turning to filmmaking. Why was that your original career choice? Yeah, I wasn't quite in casting for um, a decade. I actually left casting because I started to develop a kind of mission as an Indigenous person that came out of a casting experience that I had when I was once in a room, a part of the team casting a big U.S. television pilot, and an Indigenous woman comes onto the screen, and she's silent, and then she sacrifices herself over a waterfall. And for me, that moment in the casting room was one of shame, because I was calling in all of these incredible Native actresses that I had so much respect for, and all they were doing over and over again were being silenced and then killed. And I just knew at that moment that the power really lied in who told the stories, who were writing the script, who was directing them, because the actors could only go with what was on the written page. And that's where I started to pivot and say, you know, we've got to tell our own stories because who's behind the camera really matters. And please tell the listeners a little about yourself. Um, I am Cree and Métis, so I'm from the north, the Midwest of Canada in northern Saskatchewan, which is above North Dakota. And what would you like to convey to audiences, First Nation audiences on the one hand, and on the other hand, everyone else with Night Raiders? Yeah, I really hope that for First Nations, Indigenous audiences, that they feel like the film belongs to them that they recognize their own experience in it. They recognize their families, their communities, um, and hopefully that all comes across as authentic. And to the rest of the world, I want to express our humanity on screen. I want to express the impact of these harmful policies on our families, but also we survived because of the love that existed and the perseverance and the resistance of Indigenous people. And I feel like that has to also be celebrated, that in spite of all the challenges, you know, the amazing strength of our communities. And what have been the challenges for you in the film world, both as a woman and a First Nation filmmaker? Oh, I mean, I started, you know, back in the early 2000s, and it was a completely different environment. You know, you would go into rooms and just feel almost invisible. And when you talked about the importance of having Indigenous people behind the camera, at that point, no one was really even differentiating between an Indigenous-made film versus a film that just had Indigenous content, like Dances with Wolves. And to me, there was a huge difference into a group of Indigenous filmmakers in the screen community that I grew up with. We started advocating back in those days for change um, because there's so many barriers to Indigenous filmmakers and, and to women. And I heard so many stories um, from my friends about their incredible struggles trying to get their films made. And, you know, I've faced ignorance in the industry, even racism. I've been asked to take out my original language Cree in order to make a film more accessible. I've been told that a story about residential schools is no longer relevant. Um, so, you know, we've had to fight really hard um, to get to a certain point at which um, we're able to get projects like mine funded at a certain level. And what are your thoughts about the Canada boarding school scandal and any latest news or updates about those horrors? I mean, th those horrors that you're referring to, which came into the Canadian news cycle again this summer, is communities discovering mass and uncovered and unmarked graves of thousands of children mm. that went to residential school across Canada. These are human rights atrocities. Um, and our communities have always known that, the, that this was the case. There was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission set up in Canada to investigate this, and they talked about the death and the unmarked graves and how that had to be further investigated. And it came back to light because communities actually started to do the work of um, with the ground radar systems that actually can, can sense what's under the ground. And it is mm. devastating. Um, our communities have always known that it was the case, but this is exactly why, um, you know, I was driven to tell the story of Night Raiders because we can't turn away 
from this history, I think in order for us to, you know, head in the right direction as a nation, as a people, um, we have to know the truth of what happened and face that reality so that we know how to go forward. And what can you say about your next feature, Ivy, starring Sarah Gaddon and Alicia Braga? Yeah, I'm so excited about Ivy. We shot um, last summer, uh, this past summer, and I'm just editing now. And it is such a joy to work with two incredible women. I was drawn to the story because it was about a strong woman finding her agency. And the, you know, Elise Braga is so incredible. And we're in post-production right now, but I'm really excited for it to get out there. And any last word about Night Raiders? Um, yeah, just that I, you know, I'm so excited about the U.S. release. This is a film that is not just about what happened to Canada, but also very relevant to the U.S. and all colonized countries. Um, but the other thing I want to say is that I made it to be a thrilling genre movie. And so even though it deals with very serious things, um, you know, People have been telling us how much they just think it's a thrilling film. And to me, that's really incredible to hear as well. Thank you so much, Dennis Goulet, for calling into our show. And the best of luck at the Hawaii Film Festival. Thank you very much. Bye. And Night Raiders is out now in release online. Hello, Arts Express. This is Adam Beach giving you a shout-out to New York, New York. And I'm very much tied into my cultural identity and protecting that. And I find when you look at the non-Indigenous, when they get involved in the traditional aspect of things, they usually steal it for a monetary value, whether it's artifacts, whether it's ceremony lodges, sweat lodges, or taking their own interpretation of what a Navajo song should be and, you know, how they should dress and, yeah, protects that. up next on Arts Express. When Sigmund Freud first met Carl Jung, they talked nonstop for 13 hours. This was 1907, and for the next six years, the friendship blossomed. Freud was famous already for his psychoanalytic method, and Jung was a young Swiss psychiatrist. It was a passionate and surpassingly <laughs> weird relationship, which given the people involved, perhaps shouldn't come as a surprise. Freud called Jung the Joshua to my Moses, fated to enter the promised land, which I myself will not live to see. High praise and lots of pressure to be sure, 
1909, they traveled together to America in order to give lectures on psychoanalysis. When they disembarked in New York Harbor, Freud said to Jung, they don't realize that we are bringing them the plague, which has always struck me as a particularly badass thing to have said. Their trip to the US was a success, and they spent lots of time together analyzing one another's dreams. It was around this time that Jung wrote to Freud, let me enjoy your friendship not as one between equals, but as that of father and son. This is undoubtedly an odd thing to say in any friendship, but especially this one. When your friend is the originator of the Oedipal complex, the idea that the son, on some unconscious level, wants to kill the father. This did not go unnoticed by Freud, and he freaked out a little. One day, chatting in a German cafe, Jung started talking about mummified corpses. Freud interpreted this as Jung wanting to kill his father, in this case, Freud himself. He fainted and had to be revived. Not long after that, it all began to unravel. Not just because of their strange relationship or because they got sick of each other, although they clearly did. No, there was a real intellectual disagreement. Freud was all about sex. The libido and its repression is the most basic cause of human behavior and human failure. The unconscious is where all these dangerous, messed up emotions and desires are stored away under lock and key, inaccessible except through psychoanalysis. Freud saw sex everywhere. Jung thought that that was a bit much. The other wedge in their friendship was Jung's interest in religion and myth. Jung believed in the collective unconscious, a sort of humanity-wide reservoir of universal symbols that make up the stuff of culture. Freud rejected the idea as flatly unscientific. Freud thought Jung betrayed psychoanalysis by becoming a mystic. Jung hoped that a statue would fall on Freud's head. At last, Freud ended it all in a letter from 1913. But one, meaning Jung, who while behaving abnormally, keeps shouting that he is normal, gives ground for the suspicion that he lacks insight into his illness. Accordingly, I propose that we abandon our personal relations entirely. And that was that. The rest is silence, Jung noted in his diary. Only it wasn't. Freud's output increased in his later years, reaching for more shibboleths to demolish. Jung's later writing proliferated as his ideas of archetypes and the collective unconscious hoovered up everything from mythology to flying saucers. Jung inspired artists like Jackson Pollock and Jorge Borges and existentialists like Viktor Frankl. And that was an excerpted presentation of Philosophy Feuds, Freud versus Jung, an Aeon video presentation created by Sam Dresser and Andrew Kosravani, exploring, quote, sex, religion, and envy, how those two 20th century psychoanalytic investigators' friendship tore itself apart. Which brings us to our next guest on Arts Express, veteran actor Stacy Keach, talking about his new production online that he directs and stars in and why as Jung and longtime collaborator Harris Eulen as Freud in Jim McGrath's Vienna. Keach will also talk about his drug conviction prison time he spent in the UK in Reading Jail, as did Oscar Wilde, and advice he has for Julian Assange as to surviving in a British prison. Here's Stacey Keach, Phoning in from Warsaw on a not great connection. Hello. Hello and welcome. Okay. Well, thank you, Perry. Thank you. Nice to be here. And where are you calling from? I'm calling you from Warsaw, Poland. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, why have you embarked on this collaboration with Vienna? And which one of you is Freud or Jung and why? Hershulin and I. Uh, are doing Freud and Jung. Harris Euland is Freud, and I am Carl Jung. And this is our 10th collaboration together. Believe it or not, Prairie, we have worked together. We've known each other for 50 years. I hate to admit, but that's my age. And so, uh, uh, sure, Harris Euland uh, plays Freud, and I play Carl Jung. Harris Euland and I have been working together for, I can't tell you, 50 years. We met back in the 60s, and I uh, I immediately was fascinated. He was doing a, a monologue of Shakespeare on television, and I had done a lot of Shakespeare, and I was 
fascinated with his work. So over the years, we, we worked together. We did a play together. We did Coriolanus together. We did Hamlet together. We did the End of the World, Doc, uh, a television show called Dynasty. The last thing we did together was Arthur Miller's Finishing the Picture at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. And this is our 10th collaboration together. That's why we chose, I think, Thanksgiving weekend, because we're very grateful to be have the opportunity to still be alive and kicking, doing our thing. Harris had played Freud in Christopher Hampton's play, The Talking Cure, at the Mark Taper Forum, so he, he was familiar with that character. And, uh, and I was very familiar with Jung. Back in the 60s, we used to throw the I Ching, and that's when I first became acquainted with Carl Jung. And what fascinates you about Freud and Jung that led you to want to direct this production? Well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, these, these men together unraveled the mysteries of the psyche. They were the fathers of psychotherapy. And the whole idea of what goes on in the subconscious and the difference between the libido and the ego and all of these things were fascinating to me and I and, and complicated. And the personal relationship between Freud and Jung also was very compelling because I never knew, for example, that, that Freud had a problem wetting himself. He was incontinent at oftentimes. It actually was cured by Jung. And that Jung had a, uh, had a relationship with, with a... And, uh, an older man, when he was in, when he was 18 years old, was sexually molested, and they shared these experiences together. They wrote 350 letters over the course of their lifetime together before they broke. Before they broke up. And there's been much said about the influence of Freud and you, but how would you say they were influenced by and a product of their own time in which they lived? Well, that's a very good question as well. Uh, yes, I think, you, you know, psychology and the whole subconscious was not, re- it, it didn't really, it wasn't something that people were, were attuned to at the end of the 19th century. In the Victorian era, for example, I mean, talking about sexual relations was, was taboo. And Freud broke those walls down. I mean, you know, and then he later influenced in, in America. Remember the, the Kinsey Report mm. back in the fifties, I believe it was. So it, it, they were they were revolutionaries. There's no question about that. They they broke the walls of silence of taboos of the past. Mm. Now, you worked under those late great directors, Robert Altman for Brewster McCloud and McCabe and Mrs. Miller, John Huston in Fat City, and The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, also starring Paul Newman and Ava Gardner. What do you feel they, how do you feel they influenced you and your memories of them? Oh, well, they, uh, Robert Altman was extraordinary, uh, and so was John Huston. They were both great influences in my life. Altman particularly uh, compelling his actors to create the subtext of characters and bringing the subtext actually on screen. He loved improvisation and he loved actors to improvise and he inspired them. He would create a situation and he would then turn the cameras on and much of what you see in both Rooster McLeod and McCabe and Mrs. Miller uh, with the result of uh, inspired um, improvisations. Mm. John Huston, John Huston was probably the most important director personally for me in my young career. He taught me so many things about how to work in front of the camera without, you know, uh, feeling self-conscious and also to delve into the depths of your own behavioral psyches rather than um, acting with the quotes around it. To be real, to be to be true. He was he was a great he was a great father of mine in that respect. 
And after spending six months in a British prison for drugs back in 1985 in Reading Jail, where Oscar Wilde was also once held, do you have any advice for Julian Assange, who's locked away right now in Belmarsh Prison there, and how to survive a British prison? Play by the rules. Do, do what they tell you to do. I think that's the best, you know. I had the great advantage of having the responsibility of reading and writing for the young offenders who were also there. During the six months that I was there, I I was the librarian, and I was I was asked by the by the warden, the governor, as they call him, to write letters for the young offenders who some many of them were illiterate, and to read letters from their families when they came to them. So I I occupied my time uh, doing something constructive, and that I think helped me helped me tremendously to endure the ordeal, the time. And any last word on Vienna? Please come and watch us on uh, on www.stacykeechzoomtheater.com Okay, thank you, Stacy Keach, for calling into our show. Thank you, Prairie, for your questions. And we'll end rather appropriately now with a song about end-stage capitalism. Just Taking Orders, one of the extraordinary works of gifted Australian political commentator and cultural creator, Caitlin Johnstone, and whose many works can be found at caitlinjohnstone.com. Things for we people. hand over hand over hand over hand over hand 
entities don't see humans, they see resources. They don't see homes and trees, they see resources. They don't see feelings, they see levers and hooks to, to leverage you into giving them all you've got. No one reels here, no one reels in charge. The reckoning's upon us, but we do our tax return. The earth is on fire, but I've a Zoom call at 10. Gotta please the gods, gotta turn the work chain. And we hand over hand, over hand, over hand, our authority. Hand over hand, over hand, over hand, all that is real about me. The queen, my lord, is now dead. she's asleep. Don't believe the lies. Queen is plural, she's all of us, and she's about to open her eyes. The god stays unnumbered, the queen will return. Not one but many, our sovereign will return. Queen's a small voice inside of us that whispers, I really like it here. The queen is life, the gods are death. Off with their headless heads. May the rapture enrapture you. May the humbling break you till you're elated. May your art spill out your heart. May wonder shake you till you're naked. May the rapture enrapture you. May the humbling break you till you're elated. May your art spill out your heart. May wonder shake you till you're naked. May the rapture enrapture you. May the humbling break you till you're elated. May your art spill out your heart. May wonder shake you till you're naked. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.